all you cool cats and kittens, Tanner Hoops with you as we start a new week here in ESPN-UP. The sports pen back at you. Packed show today, man. We're going to have a lot of fun here over the course of the next hour. I've got a few guests who are going to drop by on our makeshift phone line. We'll talk a little sports with them because it's draft week. It is officially NFL Draft Week, and I've got both Dave Burke at the Lions beat writer and Rob Domovsky, who covers the Packers, coming on over the course of the next hour. We will talk about each of those teams' needs and what to expect on Thursday night with the Lions picking at number three overall. The Packers are going to select at number 30. This is the other guest that uh, we're going to have on today, and you know I'm hoping because here's the thing. Uh, I'm doing the show from home down here at One Marquette Place uh, by the Lakeshore in downtown Marquette. And our landlady, God bless her, uh, Brittany Blackburn, our community manager, soon to be Larson. She's getting married later this year, and uh, congratulations to her. She is a major 49ers fan. Always enjoy talking 49ers football with her. Uh, so I'm hoping I'm not evicted, that I'm still here by the end of the day, because Mitch Altus, the radio voice of the Kansas City Chiefs, who, of course, rallied to beat uh, San Francisco in the Super Bowl just a couple of months ago, will be joining the show to tell us what it's like calling a Super Bowl because very few of us will ever have that opportunity, although we all dream about doing that. You don't have to be in sports media to dream about that. Mitch is going to join the show. Fun lineup today. I mean, all three guys have been uh, here on the show before. They've been friends of the show, so we're excited to welcome them back. First, though, I want to talk about what everybody else is talking about, and that is The Last Dance. The first two episodes, the hour-long episodes of the 10-part series, premiered last night on ESPN, and it lived up to the hype. It was fantastic. There are a few points that I want to make regarding this documentary that detailed Michael Jordan and the success of the 1990 Chicago Bulls. First and foremost, uh, you've got to appreciate the story by knowing the backstory to it and how this all came to fruition, uh, because I had no idea that Michael Jordan had a film crew that was hired to follow the entire team around in the uh, 1997-1998 season. I didn't know. I mean, we had that premiere, uh, the sneak peek ESPN-UP was able to host a few months ago, the Dwayne Wade feature, where he had a camera crew following him around his entire career. Well, MJ knew that that Bulls team was going to be such a special club in 97-98. He knew they were going to be good. I don't know if we ended up knowing exactly how good, or if we went into that season thinking, boy, is this going to go down as the greatest team of all time? And maybe still is. There's some debate there with the Warriors teams from a couple of years ago. But MJ knew that team was going to be special, and he wanted someone who was capturing everything. Never before seen locker room footage, what have you. And the thing is, MJ wanted somebody who was going to make a movie, who was going to make a product with this film that would blow people away, the way that that team blew people away when they watched them play. And Jordan said no to several outlets and directors who pitched this idea to him for nearly 20 years. He would just say no because he didn't feel that anybody had blown him away to the point where he was comfortable turning those tapes over there. I mean, those, that was his baby. That was his baby, those tapes. And he wanted somebody who was going to do justice to them, who was going to tell the story of the 98 Bulls the correct way, as how special of a team that was. And he... He was picky about it. He waited almost 20 years, but on the night that the Cleveland Cavaliers won the NBA championship back in 2016, MJ said, okay. He gave the go-ahead, and voila. Now it's been put into motion. It's uh, obviously been sped up. The release of it was supposed to be this summer, and since we're all at home with sports uh, on hiatus, we're in sports purgatory, ESPN decided that they are going to release this documentary early and show two episodes every Sunday night, beginning last night. So here's the thing. This is my theory with why Jordan didn't, and it's probably not a far-fetched theory, knowing Michael Jordan. Why did he wait 20 years, almost 20 years? I mean, I get it. He wanted somebody who was going to do due diligence and was going to do the tapes justice. I get that. But I feel like there was some other factors that were working into this at the time, one of them being the fact that Earlier that year, in 2016, when Jordan finally said, summer of 16, he said yes to allowing someone to make a movie with this footage. Earlier that year, the Golden State Warriors went 73-9. and They set a single-season record for wins in a regular season. That previous record, of course, held by Jordan's Bulls. So Jordan was seeing a team 
comfort his team's legacy. And the, the Warriors weren't shy about that. They said, we want to go down as the greatest team of all time. That was a goal for them to get to 73 wins, and they did it. They were open about that being a goal for them. So Jordan sees his team's legacy and their status as maybe the greatest team of all time being challenged. Now, on the other hand, the Warriors didn't win the championship that year in 2016. LeBron James and the Cavaliers did. They came back from a 3-1 deficit, and LeBron was lighting up the court in ways that no one had seen since Jordan. So LeBron is challenging Jordan's status as the greatest player of all time. In one season, Jordan sees his status as the greatest player of all time and his team status of the greatest team of all time being called into question. To me, knowing Michael Jordan and how competitive they, that he is, I don't think it's far-fetched to say that Jordan was pretty well on top of when he was going to release this tape, or at least give the go-ahead to say someone can make a movie out of it. There's never-before-seen footage. I think that was timed pretty well by MJ. Tell you what, uh, going down into the documentary itself, I mean, here's the other point that I want to make on this. Jordan said that he was worried people would look at him in a negative light, or they would think he was a jerk after watching this because he was such a competitor and he would do whatever it took to win. Well, I think we can all agree after the first couple of episodes, the major villain in this story was not MJ, but it certainly was general manager Jerry Krause, the late Jerry Krause, who was the team's uh, GM and top executive during that stretch in the 90s. And I tell you what, he is a polarizing guy that I don't think enough of us knew about prior to last night. I think, you know, especially if you're not from that era, from that generation. But Jerry Krause was somebody who was very ego-centered. He, uh, he had a big ego. Uh, and here's the thing. He grew up with struggling with some weight problems. He was overweight. He had health issues because of it even later into his life. Uh, he was small in stature. He had little man syndrome in a way. And, I mean, he, he wanted to prove that he was so good at something, and that was putting together a championship basketball team and really uh, the greatest dynasty of all time. He later would go on to be a baseball scout, and uh, that'd be fascinating in of itself is to see what would the difference be in, in being an executive for one sport as compared to another and what you, you know, but that's a, that's a sidebar. That's a whole different topic. Uh, but he was a guy who was routinely and openly mocked in front of the team. He was mocked to his face. He feuded with several of the players. Really, he feuded with, few, uh, with Phil Jackson. I mean, Phil Jackson was called into uh, Jerry Krause's office prior to that 1997-1998 season and Krause told him, man, even if you go 82-0, you're done after this year. He was already grooming Tim Floyd, who coached Iowa State at the time, to come in and be the team's new coach the following year. And Phil Jackson, of course, would go on to Los Angeles, have tremendous success with the Lakers, with Shaq and Kobe out there. Uh, but Krause wanted to prove that he was the guy. He was the architect of that team, that he was the reason the Bulls were a dynasty. He didn't want Phil Jackson having the credit. He didn't want Scottie Pippen or Dennis Rodman or John Paxson or Steve Curry. He didn't want any of those guys getting credit. To him, everybody on that team was dispensable. They were expendable and they were replaceable except MJ. Michael Jordan was the only member of that team, not just player, only member of that team who was not dispensable. It's like people make the argument that Belichick couldn't win without Brady, switching to the NFL for a moment. Belichick couldn't win without Brady, or Brady couldn't win without Belichick. Well, Krause wanted to prove that he was such a good executive. He could build a team that anybody could come in and coach, and they would have the same success that they did under Phil Jackson. Obviously, that wasn't the case. you got to give credit where credit's due with Krause in the sense that he did build a championship roster. He was able to bring in Scottie Pippen, who was drafted by Seattle, which is a little bit surprising. I think if he would have stayed with Seattle, I mean, that's its own topic, but if think about that. If Scottie Pippen was a Seattle supersonic drafted by them but never played for them, that's a sidebar in of itself. He did bring in Dennis Rodman. And he, he had one of the best coaches in basketball at the time. I give him credit for building a great roster, and later he unsuccessfully tried to tear it down and build it back up, and that led to his departure from basketball. But Jerry Krause ended up being the villain of last night's first two segments. And I don't know that that's going to be the case throughout the entirety of this series, but the first two episodes, certainly he was the villain rather than Michael Jordan. A lot of that had to do 
with his dispute with Scottie Pippen, an ongoing, very public feud with Scottie Pippen, who again came out of Central Arkansas, an NAIA player. He would end up being a Hall of Famer, and you know, he, he's a guy that is going to be known as Jordan's sidekick. As good of a Hall of Fame career as he had, he is never going to be known as more than Robin to Michael Jordan's Batman. But at the same time, the Bulls paid him about the modern-day equivalent of a backup linebacker. I mean, the contract, <laughs> it was disrespectful to Scottie Pippen. For as good of a player as he was, it was disrespectful. And Jerry Krause was very open about that. He didn't like Pippen. Pippen didn't like him. Pippen would openly mock Krause in front of him to the rest of the team, talk about his weight. And it, it just ended up getting to the point where Pippen was demanding a trade. Pippen wanted to go elsewhere, and of course he did return to the Bulls toward the end of his career, but it got so bad that they ended up having to gut the team after Pippen uh, demanded the trade, and you know, MJ of course had his uh, retirement that didn't last long, his uh, what, what a, a temporary retirement, let's go with that. By the way, this is interesting, I really, really want an answer to this, because I think everyone has seen the memes by now. I really, really want to know the answer to this. If you've seen the movie Space Jam, and, and I love that movie, it's an outstanding movie. I wanted to watch it after watching that thing last night. I wanted to see MJ save the Looney Tunes from the alien race again. Uh, think about the movie Space Jam here just for a minute, and the owner of Moron Mountain, is Mr. Swaghammer. He's voiced by Danny DeVito. He's this green gremlin-looking dude. Uh, he's, he's very fat. He's comically fat, and he's a smoker, and he's power-hungry. He is very egocentric. I mean, I, it, it clicks now, doesn't it, that Mr. Swaghammer was based on Jerry Krause. I mean, to me, that it has to be. It has to be, and I need to know the answer to it. I, I want to know the answer. I need to know the answer. Someone who grew up on Space Jam, who grew up watching that movie. But it all makes sense now that Mr. Swackhammer, the owner of Moron Mountain from Space Jam, was based on the real-life Chicago Bulls general manager, Jerry Krause. I, just, I wonder if that, and I, I really, really wish I know the answer, and hopefully that's a question that can be answered a little bit later on. I don't, I don't know. Somebody's got to have the answer to that. Either or... Uh, we're coming up here on our first break. i got a few guests who are going to join me. Here's a piece of news, though, that I do want to throw at you, and it comes from the NFL. We talked about Brady and Bilicek earlier. Let's talk about the New England Patriots because they released their new uniforms earlier today. Essentially what they did is they took their alternate color rush uniforms and they made it their primary home uniform, and then they had a road equivalent. They inverted the colors for their road jerseys. They released those today. And reaction on Twitter was kind of mixed. I mean, they didn't really do anything wrong with it, but they didn't give the fans what they wanted, and I don't know if they necessarily could. The fans wanted the throwback-looking red uniforms with the white helmet that has Patriot Pat hiking the football as the helmet logo. That's what the fans wanted, and the Patriots hinted that there's a possibility that could come back, not this year, but the following year, because I didn't know this. There's a rule that the NFL has where they banned uh, teams from having different helmets in the same season. You, you need to have one helmet design and thus one helmet in the interest of player safety. Uh, that You get the uh, helmets that have been approved with your team's logo on them. You're not allowed to have special alternate helmets. And the Packers would do that for a while when they were doing those 1920 looks. Uh, I think the Steelers had an alternate uniform back in the day where they had a all-black jersey and a gold helmet. I, the, the Patriots used to do that, and then once this rule came into effect in 2013 that a team cannot have multiple helmet schemes in one season, they had to do away with those. Well, Bruce Arians, the head coach of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, and now Tom Brady's new head coach, hinted that the NFL is going to eliminate that rule after this season, that the NFL in 2021 is going to say teams can go back to having more than one helmet in the same year. And if that's the case, the Patriots, as a front office, left the door open to the fact that they may end up bringing back the red jerseys with the white throwback helmet with the Patriot hiking the football. And again, a lot of people think they should have never gone away from those in the first place. And honestly, those are the uniforms I prefer to what they have right now. Nothing against the new uniforms. Like I said, they're fine. They didn't really do anything wrong with them. They're very conservative. But that, that's iconic. That's just such an iconic look, those old Patriot uniforms. 
Tell you what, oh, by the way, speaking of Tampa Bay here before we take a break, uh, if the Patriots open this door and they bring back their throwback, can the Buccaneers look at bringing back their creamsicles? I mean, because those were so good, those old uh, Tampa Bay Buccaneer creamsicles, uh, those were probably their best uniforms. Uh, I'm wondering if, you know, New England opens the door, does Tampa Bay follow suit? With that, let's take a time now. When we come back, Rob Domovsky, the Packers beat writer, is going to join me. Him and Dave Burkett will break down the Packers and Lions needs for Thursday night and preview what to expect next on ESPN-UP. Hi, honey, I'm home. What's new? Hustle delivered our new washer and dryer today. Oh, that was fast. Any problems? None at all. The guys arrived on time, hooked up the water, and hauled away the old ones. Have a look. Hi. Uh, Hi. Uh, sweetie, what are these guys doing in our laundry room? They're the household guys. Okay, I can see that. But why are they standing against the wall? <laughs> why, they're standing behind their products, silly. Would you boys like some more coffee? Household appliance and art van furniture, locally owned, US 41 West, Marquette. Now back to the sports pen. Here's Tanner Hoot. by Rob Domovsky, Packers beat writer for ESPN.com. Rob, I appreciate you being on, as always, giving us your insight. First and foremost, what's the plan for you with the draft going forward? Well, it's certainly going to be different. I'll be in my home office and, uh, you know, watching on TV. The Packers will make um, general manager Brian Gutekunst available, um, you know, after, uh, maybe not after each pick, but at the end of each day. And we'll get the players picked on a conference call. So from that standpoint, you know, it won't be all that different. The part that's really going to be tough, uh, I think, for, for me is you really look forward to that rookie mini camp the weekend after the draft when you get to meet all these guys in person and, um, and see, you know, everybody, uh, it, it, you know, on the field and get to talk to them. And, and that's the part that, um, you know, obviously – you know, I'll miss from a personal and professional standpoint, but that, you know, these players and the teams will, will have to figure out how to deal with. Rob, how about for the Packers personnel-wise? Who's going to be communicating with who? Is anybody going to be on site in Vegas, anything like that? Uh, you know, that we don't know. Uh, we're going to talk to Brian Gutekunst. Hopefully we'll get some of those questions answered. I mean, the only thing we know is that they won't be at the team facility, uh, whether Gutekunst is, you know, headquartered in his house. I've seen other GMs around the league show off their, their makeshift draft rooms. Um, I know the Packers have, have invested a lot of money into their on-site draft room, and, uh, you know, they won't get to use it this year. Do you have any insight as to who would be uh, on the conference call making the decisions? Is it going to be Brian, Matt, and uh, any, any other personnel? Yeah, I, I think what they'll have is, um, you know, a, a call where they have the top, three you know type of people on the call and that that being the general manager Brian Gutekunst coach Matt LaFleur and probably Russ Ball just because he's you know the financial ramifications of it and trades and things like that and then they'll also have another thing where they'll have um, you know the coaches and scouts will will be able to chime in as well I talked to somebody from another team uh, a, a coach an assistant coach from another team who said they were basically told just be in front of your computer and be on standby. And we may, you know, if we're going to, if we're thinking about a guy at your position, uh, we'll, we'll conference you in and get your, your final thoughts on it. Rob, how about position wise? Is there anything the Packers are prioritizing anything that they really want to satisfy in this draft? Well, if you look at the mock drafts, Tanner, it's receiver, 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 right? Like in the first round, but um, I, I'm just, it's such a deep receiver class that I'm not convinced that that's the way they'll go at 30 um, because they have other needs. I still think they need a run-stopping defensive tackle, especially after what they saw San Francisco do to them in the, the playoff game. Um, you know, they, they still you are going to need a long-term answer at right tackle. Uh, they did sign Rick Wagner, but I think that's just a stopgap type of thing. And so those positions aren't very strong, and they're not as strong as the receiver group. So um, I, I, I'm starting to wonder if they wait on the receiver till the second round and take a, either an offensive tackle or, or a defensive player up the middle, uh, you know, with that first pick. 
How much would it surprise you if the Packers either traded up from 30 or traded back from 30? It would not surprise me either way. Gutekunst has traded the last two years of his first-round picks, uh, moving up and moving down. Uh, neither would surprise me. Um, so uh, I think we'd have to be on the lookout for everything. If it, The move up, I would think, would be if one of the, say, one of the top four or five receivers started to fall with maybe a, a Jefferson from LSU. If they started to get into the twenties and he was still there, maybe they go up to get him. I can see him going back. If there's, you know, five or six guys that um, they'd be happy with and maybe try to move back and pick up another pick. So um, I, I could see either scenario. How much is the quarterback position being prioritized? I've seen a few mock drafts that even tie Jordan Love going to Green Bay. Do you feel that's plausible uh, in any sense? I, it's possible. Here's my thinking on the quarterback is that you do all your due diligence on those top guys, and if one happens to somehow fall then, then that you really like, maybe you take them. But more likely, you take a third-day developmental quarterback, you know, in the fourth or fifth round. Um you know, maybe even a James Morgan, the kid from Green Bay who played at Florida International, who's probably uh, between a fourth and a sixth round pick. You take the guy there and see if he's worth, see if he can develop. And then if, if a, after a year you don't see it, then then maybe a year or two from now, that's when you start to think about we got to take one in the first round. Well, Rob, this is kind of a two-part question, but is tight end something that the team wants to address in the draft? And if so, at what point would they start thinking about drafting a tight end? Well, it's a weak class is the problem. It's not a good tight end class. I saw one mock draft with the first tight end. The kid from Notre Dame didn't go until the third round. Now it'll probably go higher than that. But, um, you know, they, they have a lot of confidence in Jay Sternberger. They drafted him in the third round last year, which tells you what they thought of him. He had a ton of injuries. We finally got to see his potential, uh, you know, late in the season. He caught a touchdown in the playoff, in the, the championship game. So, um, there's a lot of hope for him there. I, I I just don't think this is the year to find one in the draft. They they did make a run at Austin Hooper in free agency, and the price just got way too high. So I, I'd be surprised if if you know tight end was a pick before you know before round three. Is there anything that they're making a priority to take with that 30th overall pick, or is it just going to be whoever's the best available player at the time? You know, I don't. I, when you get to 30, it's so hard to to say we've got to do this or that because then you end up making a mistake and reaching for somebody. So I think this is the case where they have to let the first 20 picks or so kind of fall where they fall and then then, then go from there um, and figure out if you need to make a move up uh, to get who you want. Rob, how about the offseason up to this point? They cut ties with some of their aging veterans. Uh, Fackrell's gone. Balaga's gone. Jimmy Graham is gone. They had a couple of guys, and, you know, they got their money's worth. They got – salary, uh, team-friendly salaries uh, with a few guys like Wagner that they brought in. Tell me about this offseason as a whole, and are there any more yeah. moves we could expect? Yeah, like I, I wrote a piece the other day where I, I, one of the things I pondered was whether they, were, they got better or worse um, in free agency, and, and I think the answer is neither. They're probably the same. Um, they, uh, they, they, uh, you know, they, they got cheaper, I guess, is, is what I'm trying to say. Is they, they didn't spend the money on Belaga and Martinez, and they found what could be cheaper short-term replacements, which is important because of when you look at all the guys that they have uh, coming up for contracts next year. I mean, it's Kenny Clark, David Bakhtiari, Aaron Jones, Corey Lindsley, Kevin King. They're going to need money in cap space for some of those guys. Some of those guys they're going to let walk. So I think everything they did this offseason – was really with an eye on the 2021 class. When you think about what the Packers have done already and what they still could be gearing up for this, I mean, they were one game away from the Super Bowl. Are there still moves to be made, do you expect, or does a lot of that depend on what happens Thursday? Yeah, I think when you get to this point now, okay, let's see what you get in the draft, and then you can, you know, like you mentioned a guy like Tremont Williams. You know, he's still available. He still wants to play. If you don't find a corner that you think can help you right away in the draft, then maybe you bring a Tremont Williams back. There's going to be guys around the league that get cut, um, you know, based on what their teams draft. So even quarterback, I mean, look, Andy Dalton's going to get moved after, you know, they pick Joe Burrow. I'm not saying the Packers are going to go for Andy Dalton, but those get, it's going to create a domino effect where guys like that are going to find new homes. Other guys are going to get cut. Um, there's going to be things that happen you know, after the draft that, that 
continue to shape rosters. How much of a win-now mentality do you, uh, do you get the feeling that there is in the front office right now? Oh, it's for sure. I mean, there's, you know, they know how close they are. They know that they invested a ton of money in the Smiths last year, and, um, you know, they've got those guys for three more years, and really that's probably the window with Rodgers as well. But, you know, the general manager's job also is to make sure that they're positioned for long-term success as well. From your perspective, what is it going to take for the Packers? What do they need to add to get them over the hump and get them in a position to get where they were last year? Yeah, I think it's weapons. I mean, they, you know, they're, they're going to have to add weapons. You cannot rely on um, Aaron Jones and Devontae Adams to just carry the load like they did last year. They're going to have to find other guys. And, and maybe it's guys that they develop. You know, maybe it's a Sternberger like we talked about. Um, but they're going to have to figure out how to get more guys involved in the offense because it's just too hard to survive with those two guys carrying all the load. Rob Domofsky is the Packer beat writer for ESPN.com. Kind enough to give us some time and preview the upcoming NFL draft. Rob, great stuff as always. Always good talking to you. Stay safe. Thanks for joining us. Yep, same to you. Appreciate it. Let's take a time out more in a moment on ESPN-UP. Are you buying a new home? Remodeling? Refinancing? Ember's Credit Union can help take you to the next level. Whether it's your first or next home, Ember's Credit Union helps you with straight talk, no BS banking, that delivers the very best mortgage option for you. We offer a variety of mortgages designed to help you realize your dream. Ember's can make purchasing a home easy and affordable. Stop by or call any Ember's branch for more information today. We're Ember's Credit Union. Let's live it up. Dave's Collision in Ishpeming specializes in scratch and dent repair as well as other major collision repairs, including metalwork, painting, and collision-related mechanical work. Dave's uses quality Exalta paint to ensure a clean, shiny, color-matched finish. With over 26 years of experience, Dave, with the help of his qualified staff, has the knowledge to restore your vehicle to pre-accident condition. Make the right decision. Choose Dave's Collision. Call 485-1211. That's 485-1211. Now back to the Sports Pen. Here's Tanner Hoop. With Detroit beat writer Dave Burkett, he joins us on our ESPN-UP phone line. Dave, first and foremost, thank you for being with us. Hope you're staying safe, staying well. What is your plan coming up here for the draft on Thursday? Just be sitting at home this year. You know, usually, uh, well, most years I'm at the draft site. And, uh, you know, it's probably going to go to Vegas this year, depending on which which players went. And, and if not there, I would have been down in Allen Park. But, uh, obviously, uh, everyone's sort of uh, social distancing now, staying at home, and, and we're no different. Just be covering this one from my the comforts of my home office. What is the Lions' plan as far as who's going to be communicating with whom as far as how they're going to make draft picks? Yeah, I mean, everyone is at their own houses, too. You know, Bob Quinn talked uh, the other day just about how he's had to reconfigure his setup, you know, his home office. He's got his, his two cell phones. He's got a landline. He's got another landline that, that goes directly to the NFL for the draft. He's you know, got a couple computers, I think. Um, look, it, it's going to be different. You know, the, the lines of communication will be tougher because everyone is in different spots. And so I think you have to be uh, very streamlined in your process and know exactly how you're going to handle everything from trade discussions to needs boards to to everything that that is normally in a, a draft room but you know bob said he's he's pretty confident in the lions plan and, and he trusts the the technology that's in place for them right now is the plan specific to the lions or is it kind of a carbon copy that other teams are following yeah yeah i mean i don't know specifically how some of these teams are uh you know have configured their their uh virtual draft rooms but yeah everyone is is uh, the NFL put out a, a mandate that everyone has to draft from their homes this year. There's there's no gathering in team facilities. Uh, so, look, I, I think um, I, I, I'm I'm one of the ones out there that, that don't think there's going to be any major hiccups. But I certainly could see, especially as the draft goes on and there's uh, less time between picks, uh, I could see some teams having some issues in terms of being a little too scattered to, to know exactly who they want at a given moment. Does the final word then go through Bob? Is that pretty per usual? Oh, yeah. He's, he's the man who makes the calls. He said there'll be, you know, he'll have a couple conference calls going, one with his 
uh, you know, I guess closest confidants. And then uh, another one was sort of uh, the entire room. And, and uh, that one would be, you know, if he needs to open it up and get some input from a, a position coach before they, they take a player at a certain position, that's the, the, the conference call that he would lean on to do that. Well, Dave, I know a lot of the talk about the draft and leading up to it is that we kind of know who's going to go number one and number two. It's going to be Joe Burrow and Chase Young unless something unexpected happens and that the real draft is going to start when the Lions pick at number three. Is that kind of the vibe you get from where you are? Yeah, I think those first two picks are pretty much locked in. Um, You know, uh, Chase Young's probably the best uh, player in the draft, the top prospect in the draft, but... Uh, Joe Burrow is going to go number one, and, and he's a quarterback, and he should go number one. And, and Burrow's a really good player too. But but there's a pretty good drop off after those two. Uh, you know, maybe uh, had two with Tungo Vailoa not been hurt, he'd probably be number three on most boards or in that top three. But the injuries make him a real wild card. And then after that, at least from the Lions' perspective, you know, there's three really good defensive players that they're not Chase Young caliber, but they're all guys who should be. Uh, you know, impactful players in year one, and that's Jeff Okuda, Derek Brown, and Isaiah Simmons. And ultimately, whether the Lions pick at three or whether they're able to trade down and they pick at five or six or, or wherever they end up, I think they'll be picking from that group of three. Is there anything that would surprise you more, whether it be the Lions picking at three or trading down? No, you know, I wrote in the uh, the free press uh, in my, my Sunday column that, um, you know, I, I've given them Jeff Okuda every every mock draft I've done this year and uh, haven't come off that. And, uh, you know, at, at first I was sort of waiting till, till some of these, these trade, um, you know, rumors played out, you know, wanted to hear a little bit more about that, about Tua's health. Uh, but, you know, I, I did a mock version of my trade or a trade version of my, my mock, I'm sorry, in my, my last mock. And I did not have the Lions trading down from three because I'm starting to think it's going to be hard for the Lions to, to pull a deal at, at three and not that they don't want to, I mean, they certainly do, but, I just don't know what the impetus for other teams to come up is. Uh, you know, the, it looks like the Dolphins at five and the Chargers at six are the, the teams in the, the mix for a first-round quarterback or a high first-round quarterback. And, uh, you know, but I just don't know that Miami – it seems like the Chargers might be comfortable with either one of those guys, and, and Miami maybe as well. And, and given the injuries about uh, – the issues about Tua's health – I just don't know that a team is going to risk a whole lot of draft capital to go up and take a player that has or could have a a very short shelf life. With the injury situation regarding Tua and his history of being injured, is that something that's on the mind of the Detroit front office? Well, you know, look, I I mean, I've made the case that the Lions, you know, um, could consider Tua in in that, you know, in a different year, maybe that would be the, the right pick, right? If he was healthy, that is, because... You know, having a young, cheap quarterback is certainly a, a, a proven recipe to win in the NFL if that player's good. And, and Tua, uh, you know, before the injuries, at least by all accounts, was, was one of the better college quarterbacks in this draft. But, um, you know, I, I don't think that the Lions, uh, A, you know, Bob Quinn's pretty conservative when it comes to, to being a general manager. So I don't know that he would have the appetite to take a player with significant medical questions, especially in a year when you can't bring that player to your facility to, to get your doctors to, to lay a look at him. Uh, you know, this, this close to the draft. Um, and, you know, you, you throw in the fact that both Bob and Matt are on the hot seat to win now. I just don't see uh, that it's in the cards for the Lions to take Tua in round one. How surprising would it be to you if the Lions did indeed take Tua in the first round at number three overall? Yeah, no, I'd be, I'd be pretty shocked. I mean, again, I, I think you could make a legitimate case that if you, uh, you know, trust the medicals, if your doctors say he's going to have, you know, a long, you know, healthy career, uh, you don't believe that he's going to be too frail, not just the hip, but, you know, all the other injuries he sustained. And, and if the scouting reports check up, uh, you know, I, I think that's the case for it. But I would be shocked if the Lions came to that conclusion based on, you know, everything that I know right now. Well, when you think about where the situation is for Bob and Matt and what Bob's history has been when drafting, is Bob in a situation where he's he's taking phone calls, he's hearing draft offers, trade offers, what have you, or is he out there actively looking to trade out a number three to your knowledge? Oh, yeah. I mean, he's he said as much that he's been having these discussions really going back to the combine. I mean, he, he wants to trade, and for good reason. You know, again, I, I, um, my, my Sunday, part of our whole pre-draft package here in the free press in our Sunday paper was 
uh, you know, I do some scenarios of, of what happens if the Lions take player A and it, at pick number three, what do they do in round two and round three? And what I did this year was what happens if they trade down? Well, you know what, you just fill another hole with a potential first-year starter if you trade down, and, and it makes 100% sense that, that Bob wants to do that and the Lions want to do that. And, and so, I, you know, I suspect he'll be active in trying to, to make a deal happen up until – uh, the draft, but again, it's it takes two to tango, and I just don't know that uh, you know the uh, another team will be as uh, uh, interested in going up. Dave, I know in, that you're high on Jeff Akuda, of course, the talented defensive back from Ohio State. In your mind, what are the biggest needs that the Lions need to fill in this draft? Yeah, I mean, I think cornerback is definitely one of them. You know, they uh, they traded Darius Slay, obviously, and certainly they replaced him with a capable cornerback in Desmond Trufant, but they don't have a number two right now. You know, Justin Coleman is their, their nickel guy, so you're still looking for another starter, and, and Trufant is 30 years old. And so if you got a guy like Okuda or any young quarter, cornerback, really, um, you know, you, you, you fill that long-term need as well. Um, I think that's a big one. Uh, you know, up on the defensive line, I think they have needs both inside and, and pass rush. Um, but, you know, I don't, I don't know that uh, if Chase Young isn't there, there's, there's probably not a pass rusher that's going to help them right away. So I think those are the two biggest ones. They need a starter at right guard on the offensive side of the ball. Uh, they certainly need some help at running back and receiver, that, that last one being more a long-term need than it is an immediate one since they returned Kenny Galladay, Marvin Jones, and Danny Amendola. But all three of those guys are on one-year deals. So I think that's where you'll see – the Lions address a, a position that you'll see the Lions address probably in the mid rounds. It's a really deep receiver class. And if they could get someone that, you know, maybe they don't need him to contribute this year, but uh, they could see him being say a number two to Kenny Galladay for them in 2021. Dave, if you look ahead to Friday and Saturday, is there anybody that you feel that, you know, doing your mocks and what have you, anybody that could be a steal for the Lions, a Friday, Saturday guy? Well, you know, I think there's a lot of, I mean, look, because they have so many needs, you know, you're going to be able to find somebody that uh, maybe isn't a star, but but should be a, a contributor in, in especially that second, third, fourth round. You know, they got two third round picks. And so I think they, you know, they're, they're going to be able to fill some needs there. One guy I like, and I didn't put him in my scenarios, is Zach Moss, a running back from Utah. He's got some injury concerns, but he sort of fits what they want at that position. They're looking for somebody to share the load with Kerryon Johnson. I could see a guy like that. Um, you know, Robert Hunt is a guy who he should be available early in round two if the Lions do want to get a starting right guard. You know, he played at Louisiana Lafayette, so he's a little under the radar. But, you know, he, he's played right tackle in college. He's probably going to be a guard in the NFL. So he's got some of the versatility that, that people like. And then one name I'll throw out if the Lions don't go uh, Jeff Okuda up top is – uh, Bryce Hall, the cornerback from Virginia, who looked to me, he was a guy that, uh, you know, he's probably a borderline first round pick at, at the very least uh, before he suffered a pretty gruesome injury this year. I don't know how much you're going to get from him in 2020, but he's a pretty good talent at the position. And if you can get him in the third or fourth round, if injury concerns knock him down, then he'd be somebody that I think uh, would be worth adding to the roster and, and giving him a red shirt year this fall. Dave, I want to go back to something that you said earlier. You talked about Bob and Matt being on the hot seat. Martha Ford obviously said earlier this year that uh, if there's not significant improvement, then there would be changes in the front office and at the head coaching position. What is the standard, though? I mean, you look at this division. You've had two playoff teams there from last year that will both be good again. Chicago's got a great defense. Uh, what is the standard in your mind from the best that you've been able to gauge? I think it's they got to make the playoffs to keep their jobs. I mean, um, you know, I know ownership had said they need to play meaningful games in December, but I think that, you know, they just didn't want to be backed into a corner if something happened this year. They win 10 games and they don't make the playoffs. If Stafford gets injured and they still have a, a nice bounce-back season, you know, I, I think there are scenarios where they could return where they don't make the, the postseason. But, look, you, you can't, you know, inherit a nine-win team, a team that made the playoffs twice under the previous coach, win nine games in two seasons and then expect anything less than, you know, the playoffs to, to keep you around for year four. So I think the Lions need to take a huge step forward this fall and, and make the playoffs either as a – I know internally they want a home playoff game, but, you know, whether they make the, the playoffs as a division winner or the wild card, I think that, that would be enough for them to keep their jobs. What is the mindset then of the front office taking that all into consideration? It's obviously win now, but but what is the kind of vibe that you get from being around that front office? Yeah, well, I mean, they, they're aware of the pressure they're under, you know, and, I mean, Bob 
always says that, you know, I, I feel pressure every day, right? Even if the boards aren't, um, you know, breathing down his neck, I think, you know, he understands the, the nature of the NFL. They all do, right? They get paid a lot of money and you got to win. And if you don't win, you're, you're going to be out of a job. I mean, you know, people, uh, you know, when you're working in the, the business, you certainly know how that goes. So I don't think it, it changes anything. You know, I think Bob, um, you know, I, I think he still can maintain a semblance of a long-term focus when it comes to drafting uh, along with, you know, filling immediate needs. He's always filled immediate needs in round one. So I don't expect this year to be any different. Dave, when you look at the offseason as a whole, obviously a lot of coaches were let go, a lot of assistants, supporting staff, what have you, and then the moves that they did make player personnel-wise. What stood out to you, or what's your overall impression of the Lions offseason? Uh, you know, I, I just kind of shrugged my shoulders at it. Like, I I don't think they're significantly improved from last year. I mean, you know, Matthew Stafford is healthy, and they'll be better because of that. But I look at the roster, and I don't think there's much of a change from last season. I think they've... Um, you know, they've, they've maybe probably made some small upgrades, right? Jamie Collins fits the system, and maybe he's a slightly better player than Devon Kennard. But a lot of what they've done so far is, is lateral. And to me, they really need to nail this draft in order to, to win the offseason. Do you feel there are any more moves to be made, or does that a lot, you know, depend on what happens Thursday? Yeah, I mean, nothing here in the next few days. I mean, look, if they don't draft a running back, they're going to sign a running back, right? They, they need some more depth at the position and insurance. But um, no one out there is, is a true difference maker that, that's left in free agency, you know, outside of maybe Jadavion Clowney. And, uh, you know, I have never got the sense that the Lions are, are in on him. So, um, yeah, I don't uh, – and look, you know, maybe there's a trade out there, right? I mean, there's Yannick Ngakwe and, and Trent Williams. And, you know, there's some big names that are on the trade market. Uh, same thing, I, I don't know that the Lions are, are players for them at the end of the day. But, um, yeah, I, I think there are moves to be made out there. I just don't know if the Lions – uh, you know, have it in their wherewithal to, to make those moves right now. Well, I'm glad you brought that up. Is there anybody out there that you think could be a sleeper, somebody that you personally are high on that would fit in the Lions system? Talking about free agents? Or, right. Uh, mm -hmm. No, I mean, again, look, uh, there's no there's nobody that's a difference maker out there. If they sign anybody, it's going to be like a Devonta Freeman, right, a, a running back that's, you know, on the downside of his career that who knows how much impact he's going to have. So, I mean, if they sign the guy, you know, he, he's just as likely to be cut or, or not be a contributor. I mean, think of the other guys that they've signed late in years past, like Garrett Blunt or, um, you know, players like that, that, uh, yeah, people look at it and say, oh, man, all right, that guy's going to contribute for us. And then when the season rolls around, you, you realize there's a reason why they're free agents at this stage of the, the offseason. Dave Burkett is the Lions beat writer for the Detroit Free Press. Kind enough to give us some time here on ESPN-UP and preview the upcoming NFL draft. Always good talking to Dave. I appreciate it, man. Be well and looking forward to Thursday. You got it. Stay safe. We'll talk to you again. Let's take a time out. More in a moment here on ESPN-UP. Hello, this is Kelly George, President and CEO of MBank. We understand that there is a lot of uncertainty right now, but you can rest assured knowing your money is safe and secure with MBank. We remain in sound financial condition with strong levels of capital and liquidity to serve your financial needs, and our dedicated and experienced staff is here to help you through this challenging time. We have created a COVID-19 loan relief program to help alleviate some of the financial pressures you may face as a result of illness or workplace changes. Additionally, MBank is serving as a financial resource to small businesses in our communities, as we will be a primary processor for the various new SBA loan programs as a preferred lender partner of the SBA. As we collectively navigate these uncertain times and work together through social distancing measures to help mitigate the spread of the coronavirus, the safety and well-being of our employees, customers, and the communities we serve remains our top priority. We also remain focused on continuing to provide our essential services to you and thank you for your patience and flexibility. Please stay healthy, please stay safe, and good wishes to you all. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender. Now back to the sports pen. Here's Tanner Hoop. And a couple of months ago, Mitch, you got to do something that well, pretty much everybody's dreamed of, but very few actually will get to accomplish, and that's call a Super Bowl victory. First of all, you know, we all know that you're one of 32 guys in the world that get to do what you do, and it's such a special thing. You already were before that, but where are you now as a broadcaster, as a professional, now that you get to add that to your resume? 
Well, I've often talked publicly about the power of waiting and the reward of waiting, and I'm really sensing that right now. Uh, the fact that this, if we get to play, hopefully there'll be my 27th year uh, in the National Football League as the voice of the Chiefs, and for a franchise to wait 50 years, and for me to wait 25 of those 50 um, as the voice, and then finally get to, to cash it in with a remarkable team. As the years go on, uh, this team, the Chiefs team of 2019, will be more and more appreciated because in many ways they did things that had never been accomplished before. And so to experience that, not just winning it, but the way in which this team did it, um, makes it a double blessing. Yeah, they were down 10 uh, with under 10 minutes to play and then score 21 unanswered to come back and win that thing. Did it ever come into your mind that maybe we're not going to do this? At any point, did you kind of get that feeling? No, because in the month uh, basically preceding that game or the three weeks preceding that game, I had witnessed a team that trailed by 24 points in the second quarter of a divisional playoff game and ended up winning by 20. I mean, and wiped out a 24-point deficit in nine-game minutes. That's hard to do on Madden, uh, as well as doing it in the NFL playoffs. And then also witnessed the same Chiefs team down by 10 points in the AFC Championship game to Tennessee, a team that they'd lost to in November, and come back and win by 11. So at less than eight minutes to go in the Super Bowl, and San Francisco had, had looked like they'd seized control, there were a couple of things that happened. One was this experience that I've seen this Chiefs team, knowing how resilient they were and how strong mentally they were. Uh, even in our booth among our people, I could sense people getting down. And I, there was a break, and I just maybe I was trying to fire myself up, but I kind of looking at them in you know pretty vociferous, saying, "What are you guys doing? I mean, have you not watched this team?" And then I saw how the after Mahomes' second interception, how San Francisco celebrated. And I really thought there was maybe a lack of just maturity from their staff or some of their alpha leaders should have said, what are you guys doing here? That would not have happened on the Chiefs' sideline. I'm telling you, it would have been Reed, Mahomes, just line them up here. The enemy, the offensive coordinator, the honey badger, Tyron Matthew, Frank Clark. If there was some pre-celebrating, there would have been a dozen people in the face of whoever was doing that. When I saw the Knowing those two things, one, the resiliency of the team, and two, kind of the pre-celebration, I knew San Francisco might have been the boxer leading after six rounds on points and then dropped its gloves because then the 44-yard pass to Tyreek Hill, now famously known as the Wasp, was the blow that the Chiefs hit the, the boxer with the lead and knocked him to the canvas, and then it was on from there. Mitch, how about the days after it, the celebration, the parade in downtown Kansas City? I guess from a personal aspect, at what point did it set in for you, and how did you go about celebrating it? Well, it was like time and space was suspended, honestly, for about five days because it was just a whirlwind of activity of thinking um, how we're going to make – because the parade and that experience is just a continuation of a lifetime experience from that game. And how do you make that happen? Because those close to a million people who were there that day for the celebration, the parade, some were in Miami for the Super Bowl, but very few were. And so you wanted to recreate just the euphoric feeling of after that game during um, the celebration and the parade. Well, it's the upper 20s. I mean, it's a really cold day. And the getting into the back of a pickup with Casey Wolf and looking at just the people on top of people on top of people on that parade route was where it really hit me, of thinking that's an image that will be uh, in my mind uh, and heart as long as the Lord gives me days on this earth. And then just to stand on that stage, I had to emcee the celebration at Union Station. And just to, and there's a photo that I put on my social um, a while back that was just the, the moment before I was getting ready to go on stage. And it was a moment where it seemed like 25 years flashed in front of my eyes of just surviving, waiting, keeping the, the fire lit, being the pin light in a dark room during the dark times and, and bad seasons. So all of that was just crossing my mind as I got ready to go on the stage. 
Mitch, you mentioned Eric Bieniemy earlier, and I, I just I can't believe he didn't get a head coaching offer this offseason. But I mean, it, it's all the more for your squad. Uh, but how shocked are you that he's not a head coach coming up for this season? Honestly, I was shocked that he didn't get it in 18. Uh, now, I'm not taking anything away from the young coaches who have been hired the last two years, Coach Taylor in Cincinnati, uh, Coach Rule this year uh, with Carolina. But Eric Bieniemy is a phenomenal, amazing person. Now, if somebody's trying to critically evaluate him or maybe why they didn't pull the triggers, they see him more as a command sergeant major, a drill sergeant, than Eisenhower, right, being the D-Day leader. Um, but, but Eric has the capacity to be a head coach. He'll get a head coaching job soon, and then he'll join Doug Peterson of the Eagles and Matt Nagy of Bears as being two of our Reed-slash-Chief alumni to join the other Reed alumni who are leading football teams in the NFL. Right now, over a fourth of the league are Reed disciples. Well, Mitch, as we go through these uncharted waters this weird time we're all getting through and we're hoping that there's going to be football coming up we got the draft we know coming up here on thursday what are your plans for that what are the chiefs plans to your knowledge extensive actually um i was just on a call before you called and i'm going right to another zoom call after i'm done with you um referencing that we're going to be doing quasi wall-to-wall coverage some during the week but we really hit it hard on thursday uh, with some pre-draft shows right before the draft. The NFL is very strict on what a team and other broadcast outlets uh, can do uh, during the draft. However, we're following those guidelines closely, but we're maximizing uh, within the realm of those guidelines. People can go, if they want to follow this, uh, they can go basically to our YouTube channel. Uh, most of our programming on YouTube are some of our other social platforms but you can just go to Chiefs.com is the best way, and then you'll see a bunch of stuff explode as far as our coverage, both kind of pre-draft analysis during the draft and then post-draft. But I will tell you this, the kingdom's growing. I know you're in Lions country and basic the NFC North, but I will tell you the Chiefs have grown to be kind of the world's team here a little bit because of the popularity of Mahomes. It's been – amazing uh, how many people have jumped onto the Chiefs digital footprint that are outside of the Chiefs kingdom geographically and outside even the borders of our country. So it's just something about Mahomes, something about this team that people love, and they get 20 of the 22 starters back uh, from the Super Bowl back. All the coaching staff is back, and if they piece together a pretty good draft here, all of the main principles that you saw in that Super Bowl will return for the Chiefs in 2020. Mitch, last thing before I let you go, I'm glad you brought up Pat Mahomes, and I'm one of those guys, you know, part of his cult following, got his jersey, that's my guy, but give us something about him that we wouldn't know unless you're around him on a daily basis. Incredibly smart, photographic memory. He could be, um, I always said Andy Reid could be a CEO of a Fortune 500 company. There's a lot more to Patrick Mahomes than people realize as far as the total breadth and scope of his persona. Uh, super incredibly smart, like almost genius smart. But then the other thing I'd tell you is, shoot, he might be playing for Michigan State or Michigan um, in basketball because he was going to be recruited as a Division One point guard in basketball. And, of course, he was drafted uh, coming out of high school by the Detroit Tigers, interestingly enough, in baseball. So he might be, the, whenever the Tigers start playing again, maybe in Arizona in front of no fans, Mahomes might have been the opening day starter this year for the Tigers. Uh, right there along with Matthew Boyd in the rotation. Always good talking to you, Mitch. I appreciate it as always. Stay safe out there. Looking forward to the coming year, which hopefully is on time. Yes, sir. Thank you, and protect the UP. Mitch Altus, radio voice of the Kansas City Chiefs, kind enough to give us some time here in ESPN UP and tell us what it's like to call a Super Bowl victory. And, again, many people dream of doing that. You don't just have to be in the sports industry for that, but very few ever actually get to live that dream. So we're thankful to have him on. Here in our final minutes before I uh, let you go, we call it a day, I want to talk to you about the MHSAA because earlier today they released their classifications for the 2020-2021 uh, sports 
cycle, sports year, not a whole lot of drastic changes on the football side of things. They released their classifications for both 11-man and 8-man. Really not much has changed. Uh, of course, we know that Munising and Lakeland and Hubble are going down to 8-man football, but other than that, there was really nothing unexpected. On the basketball side of things, though, that's where it started getting a little, little different. Uh, there were some major changes, I would say, in that. On the girls' side of things, in girls' basketball, Menominee has dropped from Division Two, and they're coming down to Division Three. Meanwhile, St. Ignace is moving up from Division Four, and they're going to play in Division Three. So as if Division Three in the UP wasn't hard enough, you're now adding Menominee and St. Ignace. And by the way, both those boys' programs are going to be Division Three as well. You also have uh, Jeffers High School of Painsdale, the Jeffers Jets, that are going to be moving up to Division Three. Meanwhile, the Munising boys basketball team is joining their girls, and they will play in Division Four for the coming season. But you think about that girls basketball road. Man, that's brutal. Menominee and St. Ignace come up to a already a really stellar girls field in the UP throughout Division Three. I mean, a lot of people talk about that District 66 which features Westwood, Nagani, Gwynn, Ishpeming is always tough. I, I know that they've had a couple of down years maybe by their standards, but they're still a good program, and traditionally they're a talented program. And you think about how tough that district alone is, you factor in Calumet, West Iron County, Hancock had a nice postseason run this year. And you think about the girls' basketball programs, now we're adding Menominee and St. Ignis. Doreen Ingalls, one of the greatest coaches probably in UP history, to go along with Luke Chenard, who has built something really special down there in Menominee. They're both coming up to Division Three, and the girls' basketball field, I mean, it's insane. It, it really is going to be. But I tell you what, March Madness next year, once we get to that point, March Madness on the MHSAA side, that Division Three tournament is going to be so much fun. That is going to be a ton of fun to watch. Again, there's not a whole lot of other changes on the football side of things. We knew that Munising and Lakeland and Hubble were moving down to uh, to eight-player football. Other than that, nobody had an unexpected change as far as their classifications for the upcoming school year. But, again, the big story of the day is on the Division Three girls basketball side of things where Menominee is coming down from Class uh, Class B, Division Two where they went 20-0 in the regular season. They were knocked out in the first round of the tournament on a buzzer beater. And then St. Ignis, who was in the state title game just two years ago in Division Four, they're moving up to Division Three. Jeffers is going to be part of Division Three as well. Uh, there are a few changes, and they're on our social media. You can find the links there to see where your favorite team is, as well as uh, Munising. I, I do want to point that out again. Munising boys are joining their girls in Division Four basketball. And Munising is a team that... Went 20-2 this year. They're about to play for a district final before the season was cut short due to the COVID-19 pandemic. I tell you what, here before we sign off, I do have a programming note for you, and this came down from the head honchos at ESPN Nationally in Bristol earlier today. They're going to start re-airing some uh, classic sporting events on Saturdays and Sundays here on ESPN Radio, and, of course, we're going to carry that here in ESPN-UP. Saturdays are as of right now, reserved for Classic World Series broadcast, and Sundays will be NBA Finals games. Here's the upcoming schedule for each of them. Saturday the 25th, so the upcoming Saturday, will be the 2015 World Series Game 1, where the Royals took on the Mets. It was a 14-inning thriller. Uh, and then the following Saturday, the 2017 World Series Game 2, the Astros and the Dodgers played to an 11-inning battle. The Saturday, March 9th, will be the 2018 World Series Game 3, an 18-inning affair. I remember staying up for that one, doing my darndest to stay up for that one. Saturday, May 16th, the 2013 World Series Game 4. It was the Red Sox and the Cardinals. They had one heck of a battle. The 23rd of May, the 2017 World Series Game 5. That was the 13-12 game, Astros and Dodgers in 10 innings. The 30th, the 2011 World Series Game 6, where the Cardinals were able to rally and get past Texas 13-12 in 11 innings. And then Saturday, June 6th, the 2016 World Series Game 7, in which the Cubs rallied to beat the Indians 8-7 in 10 innings. Those broadcasts will be on consecutive Saturdays here on ESPN Radio and ESPN-UP from 8 to 11 Eastern Time. So 8 to 11 Eastern Time every Saturday here in ESPN-UP. 
you can hear those classic World Series matchups. Then on Sunday, we're reserving those for NBA matchups. On the 26th, so the uh, coming Sunday, will be Game 6 of the 1997 NBA Finals, also known as the Flu Game, where Michael Jordan, sick as a dog, just went off and he willed his Bulls to a victory over Utah. The following Sunday, May the 3rd, that will be uh, Game 6 of the 1997 NBA Finals. So that same series, uh, Chicago and Utah. The 10th of May will be Game 4 of the 98 Finals, and then the 17th will be Game 6 of that same series in the 98 NBA Finals. Those broadcasts are going to air from 5 to 8 p.m. Eastern Time every Sunday here at ESPN-UP. So again, Saturday nights from 8 to 11 Eastern Time for the near future. We're going to start airing classic World Series matchups, and then Sunday, 5 to 8 Eastern Time here in ESPN-UP, you can hear classic NBA Finals matchups. That is something to look forward to, a little bit of sports during this sports purgatory of a time, and continue to check in with us for updates here in ESPN-UP. Tell you what, that should just about do it for our show. I appreciate you tuning in, as always. Hope you enjoyed the show as much as I enjoyed bringing it to you. Don't forget, I'm back on tomorrow, same time and place, 4 Eastern, 3 Central, and it's my hope you join me then. If you missed any of today's show, it is available on demand. That's the good news for you. You can get it by going to our website, ESPNUP.com, or get our free mobile app from the Apple Ice Store or Google Play. The on-demand will be there. Tanner Hoops with you once again. I'm glad to be back here with you guys and working from home as we all continue to navigate these uncharted times. Appreciate you tuning in. Hope you enjoyed the show as much as I enjoyed bringing it to you. We'll talk to you tomorrow here on ESPN-UP WZAM. Ishbaming Marquette.